Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Welcome to Performance Anxiety. Thank you guys again for tuning in. Elizabeth McCullough records as Alpha Cat. This show is about more than just her music. Elizabeth began her career in music as a photographer. She transitioned to a recording artist in the late 90s, but after a series of personal and professional setbacks, she suffered a breakdown while recording Alpha Cat's second LP. The breakdown was so severe that she researched and contemplated suicide for over a year while going to therapy. It was only after her therapist passed away that Elizabeth realized how much she had helped her. With that in mind, Alpha Cat is offering a recording of a live show for $2 from alphacat.band. The proceeds are being donated to Bring Change to Mind and Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation. Follow Alpha Cat and us on Instagram. Pick up Alpha Cat's latest album on Bandcamp for a reduced price. And now let's get right into the show with Elizabeth McCullough of Alpha Cat. Um, okay. This is Elizabeth from Alpha Cat. I'm a singer-songwriter. I am a producer. I am a fairly decent acoustic guitar player. Um, my strength in guitar is that I don't know how to read music, so I have to do everything by ear, which is why I come up with weird shit that people like Doug Pettibone are like, how did you come up with that? I'm like, well, I don't, I don't read music, so. Um, and, and any other instrument that I've ever played on any of my tracks is something that I picked out by ear and practiced a thousand times to get it to the point where I could record it and then immediately forgot. So there you are. Um, so, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know where to start. I, I guess you should start. Yeah, yeah, we'll, I'll, I'll get it going. It's my cat's birthday today. Oh, happy birthday. 
to the cat? I've had, uh, she's five, and I've had her three years, and that was two years after she'd been on the streets of New York City. Oh, wow. Man, that's a tough cat. So my cat, Pedro, who is my, I don't tell Fiona, but he's my favorite. (laughs) Uh, He's like 15, and... um, Wow. He was on the streets for a year. Oh, wow. And when I met him at the uh at Bidewee over on the east side okay like well all we have is this like one year old cat and most people don't want a cat that old they want a kitten yeah and he had been hit by a car his jaw was wired shut oh my god had like feline distemper <laughs> wow and they're like take him they're like you, you know do you want to take him out and they you know, they take you into this room so you can, you know, meet. Yeah. And I picked him up and he immediately headbutted me. Oh my gosh. I was madly in love. And then I couldn't get him for like weeks because I couldn't get him until they had taken the wires out of his jaw and he recovered oh, from wow. uh, distemper or whatever he had. So I would actually go to Bodewee and visit him. Oh. That's how in love with him I was, and uh, even more today. Oh, that's awesome. So, and that's I talk about my cats now. <laughs> well, my see, my dog, we, we, he's a rescue. We don't know his actual birthday, but we, we guesstimated it was actually around July 4th. So, we kind of just celebrate... Independence Day and our dog's birthday in the same thing. And he's, uh, he'll be five this year. So he's, uh, yeah, he's a boxer Australian shepherd mix. Wow. So he, he's, oh, he's awesome. He, he's so cool. He's, um, he looks like a little miniature Rottweiler. He's, wow. he's a tricolor. So he's, they had, um, all, they're five puppies in his life and it, he I, I'm trying to remember which I think the boxer may have been the, the father and he got loose and bred yeah. with the mother so the uh, litter of pups was all uh, they're all white and brown except for our dog and, and uh, he's the only tricolor and he was the only male I believe and wow. yeah and but the, the owners they, they get, got him all the shots they they actually they ended up uh, neutering him way too early and docked his tail. This is they put all that effort into him and then gave him up. They're like we don't want we don't want him anymore. So so they picked the the rescue shelter picked him up and uh, and I, they didn't tell him his actual birthday. No, I don't think I, I don't think so. Or the the lady, I don't know exactly sure because she gave us one approximate date but the vet said no he's actually a couple weeks older so as a puppy yeah so we it was just easier to tell then yeah so we got him we thought he was like 12 weeks but he was actually ended up being like 17 or something like that so so I don't know but he's a great boy I love him to death he's a he's a sweetheart and he's really good with the kids so 
thank I want to thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> sure, yeah, I, I enjoyed the ones I listened to. The first one, um, I forget his name already. Oh, John uh, John and Yellow. Yeah, um, you know, to hear him to hear him explain all of the different the differences between you know an engineer and mixing and mastering. I mean, I know that stuff, but yeah, you know, it's kind of like. I've kind of done all of it. No, I, I yeah, I've, I have mastered not well, but uh, <laughs> you know, I used to basically have a Pro Tools studio, oh, cool. uh, which was it was not. I, I started when it was free, and then I did end up buying it when it was like seventy five dollars. And I think when I went to L.A. to make um, the you know, smile. Um, I think I was on seven. Oh wow! And so that's where. Well, and then I took a Pro Tools class, kind of in the middle of my depression, and I, I, I got. I guess it was nine or ten, and um, I never even touched it. So at, at this point, it's like I just. That's something someone else can do now. If yeah. I, if I write a song, you know, the next song I write, it's going to be in GarageBand. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I found the same thing with, with uh, well, with Photoshop. I was in, I had up to like Photoshop 6 or something, and then they changed it to Creative Suites or something like that. And then, then it went to a subscription base. And at that point, I'm like, I, I can't do this. I'm not a professional anymore. I, I'm, I'm not going to do a subscription for something I'm using as a, as a hobby now. Well, see, I find the subscription. I had to get the subscription because I had to do all the artwork for my record. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, so I um, I find it nicer because it's only like twenty bucks a month, and if you don't update it every month, you know, if you don't automatically update it, you're not paying for it. So when I need it, I can update it, and if I don't need it, I don't have to. Yeah, well, and I know enough about it that I know how to do the rudimentary things that I need to do. Yeah, yeah. For, for me, it was it was a budgetary thing. You know, I, I was we see at that point we were in Alabama and I was selling insurance and twenty bucks with I had three toddlers. It, I just I couldn't justify it at that point. Twenty bucks was some it could go somewhere else. But well, for me, twenty bucks is a lot cheaper than paying someone else to do do it hundreds of dollars. Exactly, thousands. Exactly. And so, I know, you know, I, I, when I was in graduate school, uh, Photoshop came out when I was getting my master's in photography. Okay. We got it first. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So and what, we were there, and you know, somebody was talking about fake news the other day and I was like listen you know I did a whole paper on this when Photoshop came out there was this huge uproar because National Geographic had turned I think it was a picture of the camels in front of the pyramids they had turned it from a horizontal into a vertical and there was an uproar that you know it was like fake and whole paper about how the news was never real it was always subjective it yeah. was always manipulated you know from the beginning of history so 
it's not like fake news it's a new thing it's a new term yeah not a new thing no because it's it's everything you're seeing news all of that through the uh, the eyes of the person who took that picture so it's automatically edited uh, which which came first for you music or photography how did you how did you get started in, in both of those and which one which one was first well you know it's interesting because music was always first as far as my love um, because when I was a little tiny girl um, and when, I, I remember when I was old enough to be have to do the washing the dishes after dinner yes I would I would listen to the top 40 radio or the top 10. There was one song in particular, I'm not going to date myself, <laughs> that was number one for like weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And every week when it was number one again, I would just jump up and down and cheer. Like I was so happy. <laughs> and when I, when I was like 12, I had this horse. It was kind of like this old nag that had been, you know, to had hand, which she was handed down to me from my sister. Okay. And I ride my bicycle to the pasture. And I remember when I was 12, I was riding my bike home one night and I was singing at the top of my lungs, Carol King's It's Too Late, Baby, Now It's Too Late, and sobbing. Oh, wow. Like, I had no idea what that meant. You know, I mean, except for maybe a past life, but certainly at 12, I didn't know, you know, I had no experience with that, you know, with that, whatever that was talking yeah, about. Yeah, with the emotions of the song. And right, yeah. That's... So I, I always loved music, but I did, I did also love photography, and I did, when I was in college, um, I went to a small college, which um, you mentioned Lookout Mountain in um, in Tennessee. Yeah, when Chattanooga. You're in the I um, actually skydived there twice. Oh wow! That, that's how that that's what uh, inspired the song Ground Rush. Oh wow! Okay. Jump out thinking that we can fly Get a little closer if you dare Don't look now, you are falling down, 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 down Don't look down That's awesome. But um, but the school that I went to was very small, and the art department was was small, and so I couldn't get into a photography class until I was a senior. Oh, wow. So I did everything else. I did printmaking. I did painting. I did sculpture. I did you know etching everything. Right. Um, and I was good at all of it, you know. But I just. It, there, I didn't really have anything to say, you know. I have, I have one painting left. I have, that's not true. I have three paintings left. I have a, a landscape, I have an abstract, and I have a larger-than-life painting of Mick Jagger. Because mostly what I painted 
was rock stars. Oh, cool. Okay. So, and then when I started doing photography, I mean, I did two kinds. I did, I did like the uh, Cartier Bresson style of street photography. Oh, yeah. And then I did um, decisive moment. Yes, and then I did uh, portraits. Okay. So I started photo. That's how I started photographing bands. And I again, I was photographing bands because I wanted to be around music. And I didn't feel like I had any particular, you know, right or, you know, talent. You know, I didn't, I didn't feel like I was up to, you know, being a musician. I, I could date them. I could photograph them. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, even though I did start writing songs pretty much right out of college, but it was, it was fairly secret. Oh, so you're just doing that for yourself? I mean, I had a roommate um, who was a guitar player, and he he would play with me. And I don't even have any of those songs anymore. I don't know what happened to them. Oh wow! Uh, we did one gig at a wedding down on the Jersey Shore. Oh man! And I was so nervous. I drank all this gin, and I got I got up there and like. The drummer didn't even know the song. Oh. <laughs> I don't think the rest of the band knew the songs. And we did one song, and I heard someone say, that was the worst shit I've ever heard in my life. Oh, oh my God. And then we were saved because the next thing that happened, it was right on the beach, is some drunk guy drove off the road onto the beach and so all these cop cars came with like sirens and lights and oh, so we were out, we were out, we were out of there wow that's crazy that was many many years before i had the courage to get up on the stage in front of people again okay, so so for that you now are you doing photography professionally at that at this point and what was your first uh I guess I mean paying you. I started, yeah, I started doing it professionally pretty much out of college. I okay. was shooting for um, Boston Rock, and I had a, I had a whole, I had a whole section in the Boston Phoenix of my other photography, because um, oh. my teachers was he he worked for the Globe and he worked for the Phoenix and he loved my work and he got me you know he got me this. I mean, it, my work was good, but yeah. he got me it, it, like a five-page um, pullout of just of, of my work, and it was called "Pictures of an Intuition." Because even at that point, I had realized that these moments that I was capturing were symbolic, and that it wasn't something that I could have consciously done because you know if something's happening in front of you you know if you think about it it's over yeah exactly exactly well yeah if you if you if you're taking that much time it's gone i mean i have this one photo that i took when i i'll just just an example um i was on the beach i guess i was up on the the, the shore above boston and on the boardwalk or the sidewalk and there was just this little girl and I took a picture of her and then I you know I, I print the picture and the girl has 
a, a trail of trash behind her. Oh, wow. And nothing in front of her. Oh. Like, it was just like, you know, it was just that it was just, you know, it just happened. And I, you know, I didn't, I, I tend to be psychic, but I mean, you know, it certainly wasn't a conscious thing that I was like, oh, this girl is trailing trash. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I've, in my experience with it, what it when, you, when you're shooting as much as you do as a professional photographer, you, you kind of get that feeling, that, that intuition of, of when to shoot. And I, I don't know about you, but I would just shoot a lot and get, you know, and then it came down to editing. So that oh was... Oh my God, I was, I had this terrible fear that I was going to miss the moment. Yep. So I had, I had to have my camera with me every second and I had to shoot constantly. Yeah. And finally, and then I got an automatic camera because I was like, if I get an automatic camera, then maybe I, I, you know, I'll get something that I wouldn't get otherwise. And, yeah. And then it, it became an insanity. And I was like, hold on a minute. <laughs> you know, you can't be there for everything. Yeah. You can't witness everything. And you have to just, you have to just chill out, you know. Yeah. Just, relax about it yeah and then i, I, I then i like a whole mind switch at that point See, for, for me what it would happen was when i went to college for photography i could the uh, all the assignments we had to do they would give you uh you have to shoot you know 10 rolls of film and i want to see you know i want to see your contact sheets and then we'll pick four shots and my problem was that that tuition was so expensive, I couldn't afford to shoot ten rolls of film for you know, if you know for a project that was two weeks long, and then have to shoot another ten rolls for the next project, and you know, you know do multiple projects in the semester. And I just had to, I, I ended up having to uh, economize, and, and instead of shooting ten rolls, I'd shoot like four. Because I just couldn't afford ten rolls of film and and all the paper and 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 everything. Right. It's it was just crazy to me. And, and that that kind of I got really discouraged actually going to college for photography because you know in, in my you know seventeen eighteen year old brain it was going to be this magical place where I was going to learn all these techniques and it was going to be this big open place where everybody was going to teach me all their secrets and, all. and it ended up being as f kind of the opposite my first teacher was amazing he he was awesome but if i went to a student and 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 had liked something that they had shot how did you do that uh, i I'm, i can't tell you well why not because i i need to get a good grade i don't want you to do what i'm doing and then maybe get a better grade than i am Oh, yeah, yeah like, like you can copy what they do. Exactly, and the, but again, that you know, the the teenage brain isn't isn't thinking that apparently, but but that there, it was uh, intensely competitive, and I wasn't prepared for it, and so it just I don't know. I ended, I actually ended up leaving school in my junior year, and and then just sh and just going out and shooting anyway. So, but well, I I had this really. I, when I got out of college, 
you know, and I'd only had one year of photography, and I was quite passionate about photography. So I, I went to this school. Sorry, that's my Instagram alert. No problem. <laughs> I went to this school in Boston called the Art Institute of Boston. Yes, which was really not it was not accredited the there was no you know there was no I was not going to get a degree yeah. of any with of any with any meaning and um you know they they were okay but you know the only teacher there that was that I liked was the the guy uh, I forget his last name his first name was Jerry the one who who got me into the Phoenix. Okay. But after I got into the Phoenix, because the people at the dark room hated me for some reason, because oh. I because I was so passionate about it, I would like I would be rushing in and out of the dark room to look at my prints, and occasionally I'd bump someone or whatever. Like that, I was just too passionate for them. They yeah. they didn't like that. Oh, and gosh. then after I got that piece published. I was like, watch, they're not going to let me use the darkroom anymore. And sure enough, oh. I've been in, and they're like, you can't use the darkroom anymore. You're exploiting our darkroom. Oh, gosh. Jeez. Yeah. That, you know, that that's the mindset that I that I don't like about those types of institutions. It's, it's I mean, they're, they're, I've, I had some great experiences. Um, I went to Rochester Institute of Technology, and... I had some great experiences there, but I also had some of the worst experiences in, in my photographic life at that place. I can say the same about my graduate school. Yeah. Um, I've had some great people. I had some really good teachers, but at the same time, the, the head of the department was a total asshole, completely uh. disrespectful and... Um, you know, I was older than most of the other students because I had start, I had gone and worked oh, okay. at secretary um, for a while at, at Columbia University residence halls. Oh, okay. And that was a bad experience. Um, I won't go into because I can't go into everything. Right. But, um, <laughs> like, this teacher would do stuff like like one one day I was supposed to meet him at his studio and it's pouring rain and I have like a terrible flu or cold and I, I'm waiting outside his studio and he never fucking shows up oh jeez so then the next time I saw him I was like Charles you know that was terrible what you did yeah you know? and, and he would just he would just like put me down um and you know it, it, it ended up being where at the end of the that when i when i had my thesis exhibit um which was in soho i worked i i like printed 24 hours a day for probably six weeks 16 by 20 20 by 24 color prints wow nice uh, and they were all it was it was completely uh you know it was completely well, shit what's the word uh conceptual okay uh, but it was it was it was like it was like filmix it was so there were there were assemblages of multiple prints 
that were meant to um, look like life and like life is a metaphor um, and at the end uh, you know he he was so mean to me and again I won't go into the details but I ended up writing a letter to the um, because he basically I did something that was complete made complete sense and would have saved them money and he screamed at me and so I and threatened that I wouldn't be able to have a show and um, so I wrote a letter to the um, the president of the school who happened to be his his fishing buddy oh. so of course they dismissed me as a crazy female um, like they had with when I, when I dealt with what I dealt with at Columbia um, and I was at my uh, friend's show. I'd already had my show. He did let me have the show in the end and, of course, tried to take credit for it, um, even though he had done everything in his power to stop me. Um, and I was at another friend's, you know, thesis show, and I had... I was I was like about ready to separate from my husband, but I didn't know it yet. And I had dyed my hair, you know, like bleach blonde, like Madonna. And I went to this, I went to this opening and the guy that worked for this, this head of the department was a friend of mine. And he said, I just want to tell you, you know, Charles is going around telling people that you should be institutionalized. Oh my God. And so I go out on the sidewalk and I'm like just hanging out with my friend and he comes up to me and he's like, Elizabeth, you shouldn't have written that letter. And I was like, well, I disagree. And he just kept saying it and he just got louder and louder and louder until he was screaming at me on like Whistler Street in Soho. Wow. And and I just very calmly, I just said, Charles, I disagree. And, uh, you know, it's not like I didn't have resentments against him, but I felt like that night I won. Yeah. You know, it sounds like you did. So. So you've got anyway. all this going on and you're shooting for magazines and you, so you're actually shooting musicians now. Um, is it you doing a lot of live shots or that studio work or kind of a mix I, of both? I hardly ever did live shots. I, I had... What I did was I would arrange with the bands to either meet them backstage or I would take them outside and I would set up. I before when I was in Boston, I um, I just used a flash and a you know and a, and a Pentax 35 millimeter. But then I got a Hasselblad Ooh. when I was in Atlanta. I had this setup where I had a tripod for the Hasselblad and a tripod for the Flash. Yeah. So I was doing like studio portraits with these bands. Oh, nice. Um, and you know, like, and I was getting published, you know, three or four things a week and creative loafing, which was kind of Atlanta's answer to the village voice. Okay. Like one night I was out at a club and some guy comes up to me and he's like, are you Elizabeth McCullough? 
And I was like, yeah. And he was like, you're not so great. What? <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. What? <laughs> like, I mean, I could only deduce that he was a photographer. Yeah. Jealous, you know? <laughs> oh, my gosh. But so, like, you know, it's it, the weird the weird transition was that, um, you know, I kind of, I kind of always kind of undersold myself as a photographer. I mean, I did end up, uh, shooting for a musician magazine and cream magazine. And I, I did contend that when I was in New York, but I didn't get a lot of work. I certainly had to work other jobs, but, um, I, you know, I was kind of like going to these smaller places and I had a really bad experience with a photo of Dwight Yoakam that the Village Voice published. Oh, no. Um, yeah, I, photog- I photographed him in Atlanta. Okay. And he did not like to be photographed in the front because he has a round face. Right. Um but I did anyway, and I got this really cool shot of him with like his arm on his hat, his hand on his hat, and he's kind of making a face, but it was really cool. Okay. And that, so the voice editor loved it. He's like, oh, can I use this? So I'm like, sure. And he printed it. It was like buried in the paper. It was an inch square, but he cropped it. So all you could see was the face. Oh. There was no context. So the next thing you know, I've got a letter from Warner Brothers threatening me that I can never shoot anyone on their label ever again. Oh my God. Over a one inch square photo. That you didn't even, that you didn't even do the cropping on. No, I didn't crop it. And the, and the, the voice editor didn't have my back in any way, shape, or form. Like, I, I was I'm on not my surprised. Own. So it was just very discouraging. You know, it was one of the many discouraging things that happened to me as I, when I was a photographer. Um, yeah. And so the transition happened. Like, I decided to do this last ditch promo effort. Okay. And I made this calendar. Um, I, 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 at that point, I was scanning. Um, negatives and printing them digitally. Okay. And I printed out this digital calendar. You know, I bound it at at, at Kinko's, and it was I called it uh, beautiful people, people who are beautiful. Or no, people who are not famous, but they're but beautiful anyway. Okay. And like combination of some of them were actually famous, but most of them weren't. Okay. combination black and white and color and I'm like okay I'm going to take this to some really ma- major magazines and just see what happens so I went to Vanity Fair I went to George Magazine where I didn't get on the same elevator as JFK Jr unfortunately if I had maybe he'd be alive today I don't know but oh, he said to me um because I was waiting at the elevator and he came up next to me and I, I saw him from the back and I just knew instantly who he was. Oh, yeah, yeah. He turned around and he said, hey, and I was like, hey, and then he got in the elevator and I purposely got in, waited for another elevator because I didn't want him to think I was stalking him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, that makes sense. 
<laughs> anyway, um, so I, I, I take this calendar to all these magazines, you know, interview Vanity Fair, etc. And they get back to me and they're like, oh my God, this is so amazing, you know. And I remember particularly Vanity Fair is like, your color work is gorgeous, you know. Oh, wow. But they didn't offer me jobs. Mm. And at the time, I'd been sending out these cassette demos of my songs to clubs. Okay. And the clubs were calling me up and saying, did you write these songs? And I was like, yeah. And they were like, can we give you a gig? And oh, wow. I was like, you know, sure. So then it was kind of a no-brainer because, you know, I worked so hard for so long with the photography and I was good, but, you know, I was not, it, the universe did not support my doing that. I understand that. And then when I, when I switched to music, you know, and then when I put my first record together and I had all these skills, you know, graphic design and photography, I was able to put all of everything that I'd learned in my life into the creation of this package. You know, my okay. photograph design, my, you know, everything. So it was like everything that I'd ever learned, you know, it suddenly, and everything that I ever loved, which was above all, you know, music for my whole life. Yeah. It sort of all came into play and it was like okay now this is the this is the way i can express myself most fully so how did you come up with the or choose the name alpha cat i i had this really cool photo of, of a meerkat uh -huh. and i was like kind of obsessed with them and i and so i did a few gigs with um some you know, my guitar teacher basically said he'd be in a band with me, and then I, I, I knew another guy from Boston that I'd met when he was in a band, and he said he'd play bass, and we found a drummer, and we performed a few times under the name Meerkat. And so when I was designing Real Boy, um, you know, I kind of wanted to use the Meerkat. But I had this photo of a boy that I had taken that I that I was black and white and I had, you know, colored in Photoshop just the boy so right, that it yeah. was like, he's he's in a black and white background but he's in color. And I was putting Meerkat as as the name of the band and it just didn't look right. So I my sister had been talking about she was a big dog person about alpha dogs. And I just, Alpha Cat kind of popped into my head. Oh, wow. And I tried it out, and I came up with kind of this logo, and I just really liked it. I liked the way it looked. And then, you know, the record came out. It did really well on college radio. And I got my band, I got a band together with ads in the Village Voice and a drummer who I had met in my astrology class. Oh, so cool. if you have the drummer, you can get the band, right? Right, yeah. So I had the drummer. He wasn't very good. He ended up being a con man, but that's oh, another whole story. Um, and it turned out that there were. it ended up being three women and two men. Okay. So it was like, okay, this makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. Alpha, alpha cat is like female 
you know, and, and my bass player, Lori, came up with this phrase one day, you know, alpha cat, less cock, more rock. <laughs> and so I actually made these, I made these t-shirts and I couldn't obviously put the word cock on them. So I had, I, it said alpha cat less and I have a picture of a rooster. Awesome. Or rock. And people would come up to get the t-shirts and they're like, what is that? Less chicken, more rock. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) Oh, less chicken. That makes a lot of sense. So yeah, so that's how how that's how the name came about. Okay, all right. And, and then you know, as the bands, you know, we had to when we were making Pearl Harbor, we had to fire the drummer because he really wasn't up to snuff, and okay. uh, it was Fred's idea to fire him, and I you know, I was not opposed, and um, so we got to work with some other really good drummers, and. Um, then my my bass player quit before the record release party. Oh, jeez! So Fred ended up stepping in on bass for our record release party, which was amazing. Um, even though she was a, an amazing bass player, you know, no doubt. But yeah. um, but Fred, I mean, so you know, Fred Smith coming in—that's that's that's a pretty good uh, sub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So what happened is that, you know, I had to keep getting new band members, but I just kept the same name. Okay. You know, and I would find these people, and it was basically men. Angela, who was the original guitar player in Alpha Cat, she stuck along for a while, but then I I found some guys that really wanted to be a band, and we wanted to go in on a, a... rehearsal space in Hoboken and Angela lived in the city and she's like I'm not going to do that she's like I'm not going to pay and I'm not going to go to Jersey oh wow so I had to get another guitar player and so it's a succession of you know people that kind of went through Alpha Cat like um, it just you know I just kept the name because you know, it turned out I, you know, I was a constant. Okay, that makes sense. So, the first, uh, re- uh, the first EP, Real Boy, was came out in '99. Yeah, September of '99. Okay, and that that got that was had a great reception, and the follow up Pearl Harbor had some pretty bad luck as far as the release uh, being right around the time of, of you know 9/11. Which well, yeah, <laughs> and I had a, it's 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 funny. This, you're not the first guest to, to have suffered that. I had Ken Stringfellow on, and uh, his album Touched actually came out, was released on September 11th. So, well, my my, you know, this is where being psychic and tuned into the universe is not helpful because, <laughs> you know, it was called Pearl Harbor. There was a bomb in the cover. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had the sound effects of a glass building falling down as, at the end of that through Glass House, which was a, a completely different version than what's on the, the new record. Yeah. 
um, because I, what I tended to do was write songs when we were almost done with the record and want to put them on. So then they would, <laughs> then, then, you know, gigging them out, they turn into something else or whatever. But okay. um, I don't think anybody even got to the glass sound effects because, and I had for some reason decided to work with some promoter in LA who was just a total crook. Oh. And, like all he did all they did they took me out to lunch in LA and bought me lunch and I was really impressed with that and and what they did was they sent me lists of people to send the record to and I had to put together these binders that were incredibly expensive to put together and to mail okay and so I had these this list of contacts half of them no longer even existed. Oh, they were sold to me as the these are we these are current. You know we we're on top of this. Oh god. Half of them didn't even exist, and they had they had me playing like at, at fucking Barnes and Nobles out in Jersey. Oh jeez. By myself, or you know out in Long Island, um, and you know. I mean, you know, I have my little my little portable PA and mic, and you know, I'm driving to these places by myself, and I'm playing to maybe three adults, and children are wandering around, and oh, it was such a waste. Oh. Um, you know, so it was just like someone else asked me that question about you know comparing it to Ryan Adams coming out with the New York song. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, that's just the way the cookie crumbled. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't meant to be. Yeah, yeah. And you know, even though thematically, like that, it was a concept album, and the concept was, how do you get from a place of destruction back to, which for Pearl Harbor, specifically for me, was I was thinking about, you know. It must have been called Pearl Harbor before it was bombed. Yeah, yeah. And it must have been because there were pearls in the harbor. Yeah, exactly. So how do you get back to a place where it's about treasure and not about destruction? Oh, that's interesting. That's really cool. I like that idea. So the whole thing, you know, if if people had heard the record at, at that time, I think it would have been helpful. But I think now, you know, because of what's going on now, it's not so charged. So, you know, I'm basically it's been remastered and I'm going to re-release it. Oh, wonderful. But that looks like it's probably not going to happen until next year now. Yeah, unfortunately, every, a lot of things have been pushed back. You started a, a whole new batch of songs in a, around 2007? Yeah, I mean, some of them were ones that I'd had around. I mean, they were written. Okay. Um, I moved to L.A. I had a really, really fucked up kind of relationship. Okay. Um, 
with a guy who was on tour as a drummer. I forget who he was on tour with, but you know, we would talk on the phone like five hours a, a night, and you know, he was supposed to one. You know, I think it was New Year's day, and I was living up, still living upstate at that point. Okay. And um, I'm like, okay, something's wrong. You're acting weird. And he's like, well, I slept with someone in Austin. Oh, jeez. And, th- and then I met Fred, and, and, and we had already planned, and I had already bought him a ticket because, of course, he was poor. He lived, literally lived in a storage space in L.A. Oh, wow. He lived in a storage space. Oh. Like the, the, the drummer joke, you know, what's a drummer without a girlfriend? You know, homeless. You- well, <laughs> unless you have a storage space, right? Oh, um, my gosh. Anyway, so he was he was going to come for Thanksgiving and or the day after, and I'm like, well, I'll buy your ticket if you'll record some drum tracks for me. Okay. And, and then um, I was like, okay, so... You know, here's the deal. We weren't, we aren't really boyfriend and girlfriend because we're not in the same place. We've only, you know, seen each other in person, you know, for a total of maybe eight days. Right. Um, so, you know, maybe if if you still want to come, you know, it's up to you. Okay. If you still want to pursue this. And then I met Fred and his wife's. Uh, Paula's for Thanksgiving dinner and I get this phone call and it's him and he's like did you read my email and I was I said no and he said go read your email right now Uh so I'm in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner I was planning on driving down from upstate staying at my friend Chris Butler's apartment and then picking up him up at 6 a.m. at Newark Airport. Right. So, you know, it's like 9 p.m. I read this email. He's like, this girl means more to me than I than I thought. You know, I really don't know how to come. And, um... <sighs> wow. And I was like, okay... I guess the se- the same thing applies. Like, what are your feelings for me? And, you know, do you want to try to make something of this? Because if you don't, you know, don't come. But if you do... Because yeah. he was literally on the way to the airport. Oh, geez. So, um... So he decided to come. And I drove down and, you know... I maybe slept an hour at Butler's apartment and uh, drove to Newark and picked him up and drove back upstate and 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 then the nightmare began because what would happen was you know he would be like you know I can't sleep with you you know I I'm in love with this other woman. And then the next thing, he'd be like, well, let's let's go to bed. And then, you know, and then he'd be like, no, I can't, you know. And it was like uh. a month. So 
what I ended up doing was basically sitting in my basement, smoking cigarettes, drinking champagne, and crying. And he would come down to the basement. This went on for four days. He would come down to the basement, and he would say, you don't realize how much I love you. And I would be like, through sobs, I was like, you're not acting like you do, you know? Yeah. And then after four days, I was finally like, okay, that, that's it. You've got to go. And I dropped him at the bus station in Kingston. I was like, you know, have a nice life. Wow. And then um, right after that, I I was also a huge Beck fan who was a big influence on a lot of my writing, okay. later writing. Um, and I got, I went online and saw that he was playing Jimmy Kimmel. And um, so I got tickets and I got a ticket to LA and I went out there and I, I, I met this friend of mine that I had met um, who was actually a film music supervisor who was like the only music supervisor that had his email up and we actually became good friends. <laughs> but, um, and and I stayed with him and his partner, but um, we went to the show. Beck had canceled. It was I, I don't remember who it was, but we didn't go in. And and then I just decided because I had been working, I had been I had been doing gigs periodically in L.A. with this drummer Jason Smith. Okay. And we just really had we just really hit it off. He loved my music. He was a great drummer. You know, he could also play other instruments. Um, and so I'm like, God damn it, I'm going to L.A. and I'm going to make a record with Jason. Okay. So I basically, um, pa- I packed up my guitars. I packed up my Pro Tools studio in a U-Haul. It was winter time. I'm doing it by myself. I'm slipping and sliding on the ice, packing this shit up, and I drive to Tennessee to be with my family for Christmas, and then my friend Susan met me there, and she drove the rest of the way to L.A. with me. Oh, wow. And we got there on New Year's Eve, um, and that this is like a six-day drive with two cats in the car, oh, okay? Geez. And they're loose because you can't drive all day with cats in cages they have to be able to use a litter box oh yeah yeah so I mean they were good they, were, they weren't a problem at all but um, I was waiting for a, a, a cat story to come up no I mean my cat Billy who was actually featured on the record Pearl Harbor both in photo and his voice is in the intro his meow is in the intro to uh, sometimes when I wake oh cool I used to drive with him, and he would get he he would get in my lap, and he would he would look out the window, <laughs> but he never interfered with my driving. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so yeah. Oh um, man. All right. So so you drive in. You decide to go to L.A. And so what happens once you get to L.A.? <laughs> <laughs> like, how long do you have? Um, <laughs> so I had I had I had rented this studio apartment in the Hollywood Hills. Okay. And I got there, and 
there was someone living there. And I'm like, oh. okay, uh, what's going on? Like, I, I'm supposed to be moving in today. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm moving out tomorrow or the next day. So we oh. got a hotel and, you know, luckily he moved out and, and, I, and I moved in. But then it turned out that like a month later, some people knocked on the door and they're like, we're supposed to move in. What? And, and I'm like, um, I'm living here. And, and they're like, well, we signed a lease and paid, you know, the guy who was the, I don't remember his name, who owned the house or it was, he had the lease for the house. Oh my. We paid him this deposit and, you know, basically this guy was renting out this apartment to multiple people taking their money Oh and God. not following through. Wow. So I ended up becoming friends with these poor, this poor couple, but you know, they were fucked. They had to find another place. Oh, wow. So that I was so lucky that the guy that I was there when I got there actually was moving out. Yeah, apparently so. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, so and then unfortunately I I kept in contact with this this guy the drummer who was in LA. Okay. And if I'm honest, you know, there was something in the back of my mind about him being there, you know. I mean, I was definitely I definitely wanted to make a record with Jason. I definitely wanted to make a record, but there was something in the back of my mind and that was sort of an ongoing mind fuck too because it was like you know, he would call me or I would, you know, he'd email me and then I'd email him back. I'd say, you know, you're the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life. I've never, you know, please just leave me alone. And then he'd call me and he'd leave a message. And that was when you could give your friends the uh, password for your phone. And um, so I would have my friends listen to the message and they'd be like, you have to call him, you know, and it went back and forth oh, like geez. that until May. Um, when he actually met me, he, he was, he was packed up to move back to Ohio with a stop in Texas to see this woman. And I met him at Amoeba, at Amoeba Records. Oh, okay. And even then he was kind of, he, even then he was saying, do you still have that apartment? Like he was still waffling. Oh, jeez. And then he finally got in the truck and drove away. Wow. And at that point, I had, we had completed, I guess, 15 tracks of instrumentals. And somehow I had completed six tracks of vocals because I had already done the black hole vocals. Okay. No memory of recording those vocals. The oh, only memory wow. I have is I was trying to re to, to record a, a vocal for the song Wichita, and I couldn't get a take, and I just started crying, and oh, that's it. Then I had the breakdown of my life, and <laughs> when I lost 12 years of my life. Yeah, you, I mean, you're getting mentally beaten up every which way you turn. Yeah. Oh my gosh. 
and part of that that breakdown, you end up losing your voice. Well, you know, losing my voice in the sense of I was trying to sing that vocal. I sang that song many times. You know, I demoed it on my own. Um, I knew the song. I couldn't get a good vocal, and I, that's what just that shut me down. Wow. And I just, I just, you know, I just, I just lost all hope basically and um, I stopped going to the studio and I you know I had this tiny apartment and one of my cats he was very sweet but he was not very well behaved ever and so I'm having this breakdown where I'm just lying in bed either crying or like reading I was I was reading like two or three Agatha Christie's a, a day oh wow like that's all I did was just lay in bed read and cry oh my god and so he started peeing peeing at the doorway which this is a door that leads out into the canyon in, uh, you know in the Hollywood Hills okay and I had a little kind of terrace area. It was just dirt, but I had a chair out there, and I would sit out there with my computer and read my horoscopes and smoke cigarettes and drink coffee in the morning and drink wine at night. And coyotes would literally, like, lay down, you know, five feet below me. Oh, wow. So, you know, the cats could not get out, and he did get out one night, but that's another whole story. Oh, no. Which involves tequila, but... um, (laughs) As most good stories, or really bad stories do. Right. Luckily, uh, he was... The coyote didn't get him when he got out, but... um, So, you know, this cat was like... uh, He loved me so much, and I I never really loved him. I loved all my other cats, and I felt guilty about it, because he lives the longest of all my cats, and... He, you know, in the last, he was very sick the last, like, three years of his life, and, you know, I'm giving him shots every day, and he, you know, the last, like, month of his life, or maybe six months, he would get on my chest in bed, I'm trying to read, and I'd be like, Joey, you know, I'm trying to read, you know, and he was just trying to be close to me, because he knew that he didn't have much time left. Aww. So we're in L.A., you know, years later, years before, and I'm having the breakdown, and he's acting out. And uh, one day, I I guess I'd gone out to the store or something, and I get in my bed, which was just this platform with a mattress on it. Okay. And um, there was shit on it. Oh. And I was like, motherfucker, Joey, and I... You know, I, I picked the shit up and I put it in the toilet and flushed it and 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 I was I was just gonna just get in bed anyway and I got in the bed and it was wet. Oh. So he had peed, he had shat and peed in the bed. Oh my god. And then I was like that I I can't and I I the next morning I drove him to the vet and I boarded him there until my sister came and got me. Oh wow. Yeah. How did you get through all this 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 time period? This 
what did you do to to get through all that period and and, and recover? Well, um, you know, it's I I I don't know. Howard probably told you that I that I'm putting out this live recording for, to benefit mental health. Yes. And I had this therapist that retired in September of 2018 and I thought that because I was still depressed that she hadn't done me any good okay. and then on the 6th of June D-Day and Eclipse Day I talked to the woman that I had known ever since I first went into McLean's Hospital in 2007 and I said, you know, I think because I when I had, when she had retired, I'd said, you know, if something changes for the better in my life, do you want me to let you know, you know? Yeah. And so finally, you know, after I eventually, you know, finally, like my last resort was I became an alcoholic okay. and that getting into AA was like the beginning of my recovery, you okay. know? So I, you know, things started to really turn for the better, you know? Yeah. I, I'm, I, I to put this record out. I contact Brett Thorngren, who had who had mixed it for me maybe five or six years earlier, because I just thought, you know, it'd be nice to hear what they'd sound like if they were mixed. Yeah. And he did such an amazing job. And, you know, my friends would listen to it and go, wow, you know, that sounds great. And, you know, some of them were like, oh, you should put it out as an EP. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not going to put out an EP. I'm not going to put it out until I can put out the entire record. Okay. And then, and just for some reason, in June, um, I, I, I took a friend to lunch. I went to go to a movie. Uh, there was a little time I had to wait, so I sat on a bench uh, on Central Park West, and it just popped into my head, I want to put this out. Oh. And I texted Brett immediately, and he got back to me immediately, and he was like, oh my God, I just found those recordings two weeks ago, because when he mixed it, he was like, and he was a, he was a DJ, he was like a, a big time DJ. Oh, okay. He went by Cosmo big time all over Europe and you know huge oh, okay he's like a genius he's a genius engineer mixing and mastering person which I know um, more about now right right <laughs> and but when he was mixing it you know he'd mix one song and he'd, he'd get back to me he'd be like oh my god this is epic you know and he just like every song he had that response to and I was like that's really nice you know and and yeah. um Especially for, you know, what I thought was, a, you know, a hip-hop DJ or just whatever he, he, he did. Yeah. But, you know, he had a real appreciation for actual real music. So, so I, you know, I text him. He's like, I just found the recordings two weeks ago. I was thinking about you. He's like, I'm all in. Let's do it. Awesome. So, um... I had decided to reward myself with a trip to London. And so I went to London. I had bought this new laptop because my old laptop was from 2008. And 
it was so old that I couldn't upgrade the system. Oh, jeez. And I couldn't pay my rent anymore because they required you to pay online. So I was like, oh, fuck it. I'll buy the newest MacBook Pro and I'll just keep it for, you know, 10 years like I do all my years. Yeah, I do the same thing. So then I bring it to London and I'm, you know, Cosmo is like sending me mixes. I'm, I'm in this tiny hotel room and I'm listening to these mixes on my laptop and giving him notes you know, in my little room on my bed, having tea and cookies, biscuits. <laughs> biscuits. And, uh, you know, I'd go downstairs at maybe 6 a.m. and had to have a cigarette, and he would FaceTime me, and I'd be like, what the fuck are you doing up at this <laughs> hour, you know? <laughs> and he'd be, like, all excited, and, you know, we would talk, and we, we just, we become, he's like my work husband. He's oh. like my husband that's awesome um, he's he's got two kids he's got a wife but as far as I'm concerned he's my he's my my collaborative partner musically <laughs> at, at this point oh that's great so and we you know it's sort of a similar kind of you know beautiful mind kind of crazy genius <laughs> thing going yeah. on. Um, but so yeah, you know, we started. I started, I started, you know, listening to and approving mixes. Oh, and I also briefly was back in touch with my old bass player, who had also gone into AA. Oh wow! Because we used to drink together, <laughs> and uh, she was she was way worse than me, a lot earlier than me. But um, and I called her up and I said, you know he wants to remix all this stuff you know what do you think and she's like because he was like well the technology is so much more advanced than it was six years ago when I did this and he's like of course you have to so then he remixed it and mastered it and I'm you know I did a lot of it when I was in London okay. um, and then I came home and did a lot of it here finished you know we finished it off here and I got a friend from graduate school, did the artwork for free for me. You know, wow. I bought the $20 uh, InDesign Photoshop package, yeah. and I <laughs> put the package together and uh, bought a bunch of CDs because I hadn't put a CD out since 2001. Yeah. And <laughs> I didn't know, you know, I didn't know how many CDs to buy. Right. Um, and I, I had a little record release party. I had like a little one here in the city and then a little one upstate oh, cool. um, for my friends up there. And um, one of my friends was like, he saw the boxes of CDs and he's like, what are you going to do with all those CDs? And I said, well, I don't know, probably hold on to them for 10 or 15 years and then take them to the dump. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I still out, love CDs. It's, as it's turned out, I'm now on my, I, I'm now on my third record, my third radio promoter, and I think I finally found the right fit. And essentially, we're going to re-release the record Oh, entirely to college. Ah, and well, 
and this is a guy who broke Janelle Monet and uh, people like that. I mean, uh, and he he just made so much sense and um, and I you know I the first promoter, another guy on the spectrum, you know, bless his soul. <laughs> you know, he loved the music, but you know he just you know he just he wasn't really he had he had a young staff that were you know helped me set up my social media yeah um he also did had someone that did publicity i got a lot of good review great reviews um in places that nobody had ever heard of except for maybe three i think buzzfeed and maybe reddit and medium were the only ones that anybody I'd never heard of any of them but um, those were people people I knew had heard of them my family because when the record came out I was up at my family cabin in Michigan uh, with my sisters two of my sisters and I had a little record release party there on August 21st because it was the um, it was the anniversary of my father's death oh gosh so we had a little party there. Oh. So I had three little tiny record release parties. So the the music on the album is this it's it's not re-recorded or anything. It's the, it's what you recorded back in in 2007 then. Everything except Black Hole. Black Hole is essentially what's on the Pearl Harbor record, but after Pearl Harbor came out I decided, and Fred agreed, that you couldn't hear the acoustic well enough. So we, okay. we re-recorded the acoustic. And then in my very sad winter after I moved upstate, after my father died, um, you know, I had my Pro Tools studio up to date at that point, And yeah. I ended up just recording a bunch of harmonies. And so the difference between the the Pearl Harbor black hole and the thatched roof black hole is better guitars, better acoustic, a lot of a lot more harmonies, remixed and remastered. Okay, okay. Well, I've I've been completely obsessed by one day the sun the sun came up and every day you break my heart. Those two songs are amazing to me. They sound, it's it's funny. This, I don't know. If this may sound a little odd, but they they almost sound like they have like a spooky Alice in Chains kind of vibe to me. experience and again like life 
mirror, you know, what you're witnessing mirrors what's going on inside you. Mm -hmm. And Every Day You Break My Heart was written about my mother, um, Christmas after my father died. She had stopped drinking, but she was a dry drunk because she never she never believed that she was an alcoholic and she never got any help you know uh, yeah. I went to rehab and there was a really horrible uh, incident with her um, okay. which prompted me to write that song and I um, it's really weird because I went upstate recently and I pulled out this P.G. Woodhouse book and I opened the cover and there were the first notes that I made for Every Day You Break My Heart. Oh, wow. And it's, it's, there's some other stuff, but at the very, at the very bottom, it said, you know, maybe there's six or seven lines. The last line was, you break my heart every day. Wow. So I just found that book, like, literally weeks ago. Oh, my gosh. And after my mother de- died in April. Right. Oh, geez. So, um, so that was that's where that came from, and that that I wrote. I finished writing in Jersey City, and I um, I I did record that. Um, I had this really great guitarist, Ann Klein, who's, who's from New York, um, come in, and I was like, I want these choruses to be just fucked up guitar. I wanted I wanted it to just be like crazy yeah um and she did a really good job but then when i did went out to la and i got that doug pettibone you know he's like on another level oh yeah yeah this Anne because she's amazing but um you know pettibone just i mean he rolled up the first day with a truck full of cars like he has a special truck that has a cover on the back and okay. it lifts up and it's completely full of guitars. Oh my god. Jeez. Completely full. And I think he used every single one. Oh man. Everything from the slide to, you know. The other thing that I mean I know I'm jumping back and forth, but um the other thing that happened and uh, because I I had I was only on two meds at that point, and I'd run out of one of them, and it was like five hundred dollars. Wow! And I didn't have my shit together to figure out that I could print out an insurance card. Um, so I stopped taking it, and that that I'm sure also contributed to my breakdown. But um, I, I, you know, I was still working with this nurse practitioner from Woodstock okay. over the phone, and she prescribed um, Prozac. Okay. The Prozac made me shake so much that I couldn't play the acoustic guitar. Oh, jeez. So I taught 
dug every single one of my parts ver- and he played them verbatim oh. which is the only reason I don't credit him for playing acoustic guitar on the record it's because they were all exactly my parts okay that I had written and there was and we did record Wichita together we did we did we played it we were both in the same room and we played it together so there's when Wichita finally comes out, if it comes out, when it comes out, it's going to have this doubled acoustic with he and I playing. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to hear that. But one day the sun came up. One day the sun came up. We were high over the canyon and headed for home. Racing the sunrise, don't look back You know California's a dream to you day that I I dropped off Pearl Harbor at the manufacturer I was in LA I dropped it off on September 10th of 2001 yeah and I had I never flew out of JFK but for some reason I did that time so I actually had gone underneath the World Trade Center to get to JFK. Oh, wow. And um, so my flight was delayed and in LA by three hours. Okay. So what happened was, um, I mean, I, I'm, again, I'm claiming to be psychic, but basically I, I, I couldn't sleep. You know, I was so... I, I just sensed something was really wrong and I couldn't sleep and you know I had some drinks and you know I took a you know I, I, I took a, a Dramamine or whatever and I just couldn't sleep and I just was so like disturbed for the whole flight wow. and then it turned out that the flight that I was on was the very last flight that landed at JFK the morning before the the morning that the planes hit. Oh wow! And um, so we were the last flight to land. Um, you know, we hear about you know a plane. You know, I'm out on the I'm out on the curb waiting for a cab to take me to. Uh, the path train in the city yeah and somebody says well a, a plane hit the World Trade Center and I thought oh well you know maybe some small plane like you know I thought some idiot you know drove a small plane into the World Trade Center that's and exactly that, what I thought when I heard about it and then um, and then the airport shut down and the 
what what they did which was really fucked up and I I never wrote a letter about I wrote the letter I never sent it but all of the hotel reservation booths in um, in JFK airport yeah they hiked their prices up by like 300% oh my god I didn't realize that they knew we were trapped and I I ended up getting together with this Irish girl, two Irish girls, one from Northern Ireland, one from Southern Ireland. Um, and we got the very last hotel room. Jeez. And we literally, like, we got in a cab to go to the hotel. The cab driver mistakenly drove off airport the cops stop him they're like you can't drive past here you know you can't so we we had to get out of the cab and climb the hill to the to the hotel like in the sound of music wow and that's when I got you know and then it took like two hours to check in and then I went to the bar and I saw the footage. Oh, jeez. And then I started drinking gin. Wow. And, you know, then the Red Cross came in and they, you know, they had beds set up everywhere and we literally had the last room. Um, so we actually had real beds that were in a room instead of the other people that had to sleep on the cots. Yeah. In the- uh. And then the next day, um, they brought a bus. Uh, they decided that they they were going to bus us to the subway. And these two Irish girls didn't have anywhere to go because there were no, you know, no, nobody flew for, I don't know how long it was, months? Yeah. At least. Yeah. So well, it was a while. Yeah. So I brought them home with me. I had this house in Jersey City, and they stayed with me. Oh wow! Uh, for a week or two, waiting for the airports to open up so they could go home. Oh my and, gosh! Um, and we would walk down to the waterfront and just watch watch it burn. And I got this phrase popped into my head: "Smoke, fire, and dust." because you know it was people you know it was the dust was people yeah so it went green you know it was like and we you know we we here in New York and we were in Jersey City so we're like right across from where the World Trade Center was yeah and you know and let's not forget the fact that if my plane hadn't been three hours late I would have been underneath this World Trade Center when the plane hit so that's another part of it oh my gosh um so yeah smoke fire and dust and you know taking the experience I had on the plane and um you know, when I when I did my first little record release party in Michigan before I had any videos, or no, maybe I did have a video. I don't remember. Um, 
I'm I because I always thought you know the the one thing wrong with this song is I'm saying racing the sunrise. You know, California is a dream to you now because you know I wasn't racing the sunrise. I was I was heading toward the sun. Well, I, I was heading east. So um, you know that 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 was not my experience. That I was racing the sunrise. And when I was in Michigan, you know, um, I happened to look up the timeline of, of 9-11 for like the, you know, the exact times of when everything happened. Yeah. And that's when I realized that I know at least two of the planes were headed to California. Oh, and they wow. were facing the sunrise. Wow! It was a dream to them because they never, li- they didn't live. Oh my gosh! So that didn't even occur to me until August twenty-first of last year, the day the record came out. Oh my gosh! I always thought, well, you know, there's something that this is the one thing wrong with this song, you know. But it wasn't. Turns out it wasn't. Yeah. Oh my. So then you 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 actually you you're releasing a live show from 2005. Also, that's that I, I want to know a little bit more about because you said that you just kind of found it. Well, you know, I went upstate and I I found I was going through drawers looking for stuff and I found my mini disc recorder and uh, box, a little box of mini discs. Okay. And I brought it back to the city with me. I thought, you know, maybe I'll get up the, the, the nerve to listen to these. And it took me a while um, because I, you know, I, I always assumed that I sounded like shit. And I, I, um, the first one I listened to was my last two gigs before my breakdown. And... The first one was at this coffee shop in Brooklyn, which is the one that I'm releasing. Okay. Um, and that was, and then the second one, oddly enough, I was I was on this um, I was on this compilation record uh, called Females on Fire that was out of L.A. Okay. And so. Um, I flew out there to do, you know, to play the gig and, you know, I got Jason and Jason got, you know, some other great people to play the gig and they let me have six songs. Everybody else had two, but I got six because I, New York. Okay. So first I listened, the first, the first gig on the mini disc is the Vox Pop gig the coffee shop gig okay where there's a lot of banter you can hear you know it's a mini disc recording so the quality you know there's only so much you can do yeah but there's a lot of banter there's you know you hear the audience and me talking back and forth you know there's a real personality to it oh yeah and the performances are actually really nice and then there's the gig at the mint in LA which was great but one the crowd noise was so loud 
uh, that it was louder than us. Oh, wow. Two, my friends at the time that were recording it at their table were talking through the whole thing. Oh, jeez. You know, my friend's like, oh, this song, Monsters, this is my favorite song, you know. Every day your bed's in a different place, but the monster always finds you, you know. And it's yeah. like, I'm listening to it, I'm like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> And then the weirdest thing about it was the last song was Venus Smile. Right, okay. And we get through almost the entire song, and right before the last verse, the, the disc cuts off. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Oh. Man. I mean, so that was also incredibly symbolic. Yeah. You're offering this as a as a $2 download, and the proceeds are going to two different organizations? Yes. All right, can you tell me a little bit about what these organizations do? Well, um, the first one that I actually posted long before I even listened to this gig. Well, I don't know if I'd listened to the gig or yet or not, but certainly before I decided to um, before I decided to put it out, um, I watch I watch most of my news I get from Stephen Colbert, Trevor Noah, Seth Myers, Jim Kimmel. Okay. So one of them, it may have been Trevor Noah who I adore, had Taraji P. Henson on there, and she's talking about, and it's after the pandemic, obviously, they're doing it from home. Yeah. And she's talking about, you know, this foundation she started in honor of her father, who had mental illness. Okay. And about how it was so much harder for people in... The, the black and brown communities to get mental health care and that the stigma was so much greater for them. Right, yeah. So I was like, oh my God, you know, so I immediately like donated to them and then I and then I put it up on my website. Uh, no, on my Facebook page and all my social media. Okay. And then um, I don't know how much longer later uh, Glenn Close was on one of the shows and she had started um, a mental health initiative because her brother was mentally ill and that actually had started long before Taraji's and uh, it was the same thing it was you know helping people get care and helping to erase the stigma of seeking care. Okay, okay. So I thought, you know, these two are perfect. The irony is that, you know, I had this belief that therapy hadn't helped me, and now I'm circling back. Ah, okay. I found out that my therapist had died. Uh, and my friend comes over because I only had one person that came over. It's my was my is my best friend in the city, and she lives half a block away. And she takes care of my cats when I go away. Okay. Uh, 
Fiona loves her more than she loves me. <laughs> um, but she came over and I started telling her and I just started crying and I just realized like, oh my God. Um, the only thing she could have done for me at that point during that period of, of time was keep me alive. Wow. And keep me, uh, let me live independently from my, you know, es essentially destructive family. Yeah. Wow. And she would, I, it's going to be on the website, but, you know, I, like, I, I was afraid to open an email. I would forward it to her. Oh, she wow. Would, I'd get a new lease. I'd be afraid to open it. I would bring it into her office and she would read it for me and she would break it down and she would help me figure out how to deal with it. She helped me get through day-to-day -day life. Like she didn't, she never pushed me to do music because, which was not the case with, with other people. Okay. But she knew how much pain and fear I had around that and she my family was was pressuring me and pressuring me to sell my house upstate and I just somehow felt like I just needed to hang on to it I just you know I didn't know if I was ever going to get better but I I just didn't want to sell it because it was like it was the only place that was really mine you know okay and you know, I would go and see her, and I had this. I had been prescribed these pills that um, that if you took enough of them, they would kill you. Okay. And I had my coffee table, and every time I would go in to see her or my psychiatrist, my, the guy who prescribes my meds, they would say, "Are the pills still on your coffee table?" And I would say, "Yes, they are." And, was, and Robin totally understood that it was like, that's, that's my out. Like, if I need it, it's there. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, I was at the point, and I haven't, I haven't talked about this yet, and you're going to have a lot of editing to do, but <laughs> I was at the point where the only way that I could be alive was to be unconscious. So I would wake up in the morning and I would have a vodka drink and I would take like five or six clonopin and I would go back to sleep and I would basically just sleep all day. Oh, wow. I couldn't read. I couldn't read a book. Um, I, I really couldn't watch TV. Um, the only thing I could read was trash magazines, which is was a habit that I started when my father died and I didn't drink at all really then and I I started reading them then because I you know it was the only thing that I could concentrate on okay you know, we were sitting around for a week waiting for his funeral yeah oh gosh so um I got really she, so one one day she one I guess it was a Friday and I had talked to her on the phone because if I called her up if I was having a crisis the minute she got out of a session she would call me immediately oh wow um and like a lot of times I'd be suicidal and she'd be like okay take a clonopin that's what they're for right and it would help 
Um, but then one Friday I was really bad and she said, I'm going to call you tomorrow. And I did the same thing that I had been doing for a long time, which was I woke up, I had a vodka drink and I took maybe five or six Klonopin. And so she called me and I didn't wake up and she called me, I guess, two more times. And then she called 911. Oh, wow. And so um, I get this rat, you know, this loud knocking on my door. It wakes me up. And I, I go to the door and I, I'm thinking, you know, in retrospect, I probably wasn't completely lucid. I felt like I was. Yeah. But, you know, it's two cops and they're like, what are you doing? And I said, well, I was just taking a nap, you know, and they're like you're coming with us and they put me on a 5150 I think it's called um yeah shoved you know shoved me in this room with this girl who was insane like she didn't sleep all night I didn't sleep all night she was all night screaming um luckily the second night I got my own room and for some reason I had brought (laughs) I had this I had uh, two volumes of the complete Sherlock Holmes, and that's all I had to do. I was reading that while I was in the hospital, and the food was just so bad. Like, I all I, I the only thing I could eat was milk and oh my gosh. Uh, orange juice. Wow! Like it was terrible, and it was the year that Madonna did the Super Bowl because I remember going into the TV room and watching her. Oh, gee. Because all the nut jobs, you know, were all in the TV room watching the Super Bowl, and I didn't care about the Super Bowl, but I was curious to see Madonna. Okay. (laughs) That's the only way I know when that was. Oh, my God. So it was in February, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. But, yeah, I was angry with her for years about that and she always said you know she said you know the only thing I would have done differently is I would have come and visited you oh okay wow but you know looking back and it was already I had already decided to sell this for this purpose because you know even though I felt like therapy hadn't helped me um you know, I know that it helps some people and I didn't, you know, I didn't, you know, with this pandemic, I didn't want, you know, it's, it was very clear that people were going to be having trouble. Exactly. And, um, you know, so after I already decided to sell it, then I found out about her dot, her being dead for two years. And I realized everything that she had done for me, which was... She kept me alive. That's amazing. That, that's that, that's a hell of a story. I've never heard anything like that. And you know, I, I may be repeating myself, but I just, you know, whenever things started to change for the better, and I, I really wanted to tell her, and I kept trying to contact her, and I didn't hear anything back and I 
I just thought, you know, that's weird. Yeah. And then finally, I I asked, you know, my 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 woman from McLean's, and she said, yes, she died two years ago. Oh my gosh. Because I had I had pretty much assumed that to be the case, but I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And so the the no way she wouldn't have called me back. And she must have died almost immediately after she retired. And apparently she had cancer for over a year before that, and she was going to retire the year before, and she had some kind of treatment, and it worked for a while. So she put off her retirement for an, an entire year. Oh, wow. Uh, and and so... have to be alive for another year, you know? I'm, I'll I, tell you one more thing about about the suicidal thing. Yeah, I went to go see a movie. I don't know if you've heard of it called Me Before You. Ah, uh, no, I'm not familiar with that one. It's uh, Amelia Clark and Sam Claflin, I think. Okay. And he plays a guy that was just a vital, like, gorgeous, you know, athletic, successful man who has I think through some kind of water port accident become a quadriplegic oh okay Amelia Clark goes in to be his companion she takes a job as his companion okay and you know he's very angry and he's very you know he's very shut off and she's really wacky and fun and you know she just he just softens up eventually and they fall in love and she gets him to go out and she takes him out on a boat and and then she finds out that he has this plan uh, that he in six months he's going to this place in Switzerland where they give you assisted suicide oh wow and she finds out about it and She's like, she tries to say, she's like, no, no, you can't do it now. You know, we can have such a great life together. You know, we're in love and, you know, you can't do it. And, um, and in the end, he does it. Oh, wow. Because he says, I can't, he, he says, I can't live life this way. This is not the way I was meant to live life. And I left that movie and I was like, I am paralyzed. I've been paralyzed for, I don't know how many years it was at that point. You know, I have no life, I have no prospects, I have no passion, I have no love. And I wrote the people in Switzerland, I researched it and I wrote them. And I wrote them and I said, I, am paralyzed I've been this way for a long time and you know can you help me wow and they wrote me back and they said the only way we would do it for someone for psychological reasons is if your psychiatrist and your therapist sign off on it oh wow <laughs> was not gonna happen no so then, you know, so then I gave up. And then, you know, the funny part of that is that 
they send me newsletters to this day. And I met this, I met this guy in, um, in AA that we got close and he's a comedian. And, um, you know, I was telling him about that and I was like, yeah, they send me letters. And, and so I came home and I went through my email and I found one of them and I forwarded it. I had told my sister too. I forwarded it to both of them and, and the heading was, if you're still, if you're, if you're not dead yet, please subscribe and send money. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> and they still send them to me. Oh my gosh. You wouldn't, you wouldn't let me, you wouldn't help me die and you want my money? <laughs> Oh my god! Isn't that crazy? Maybe that's why they didn't, they wouldn't help you. Well, you know, everything happens for a reason, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, you're you're offering this live show. Um, it's the money is going to uh, bring change to mind and the Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation, and you right. also uh, offering your. Uh, that's Roof Glass House album uh, at a substantially reduced price because of so many people being affected by the COVID-19 virus. Which I did that at the very beginning of the pandemic. I, I think that's amazing. Well, I mean, you know, I figured, you know, I want the music out there. You know, if I sell the record for 50 cents, it's still going to count as a sale. And... Yeah. You know, if I sell a track for ten cents, it's going to sell for count as a sale, and it's essentially anybody can afford that. And if they want it, you know, they can buy it. And um, it's the music is is amazing. It's absolutely beautiful. I love it. I've been listening to it for for days now since since we got this whole thing set up. I've I've been going back and doing my research and listening to it. So it's, I mean, it's worth way more than you're charging. So. Well, you know, somebody actually bought it today from the UK for five dollars. Hey. And I wrote him back, and I because nobody's really bought it. Really, and I wrote back because everybody's just streaming, you know. And it's yeah. it's like my website is not really that well known. My my social media, my my Facebook is pretty good. Yeah. My um, I mean, for you know, for somebody that's essentially unknown. <laughs> um, my Instagram, yeah, it's inching toward a thousand. Uh, Twitter, I have twenty six followers, so that's where I am. <laughs> that's where I let loose with my political beliefs <laughs> because there's nobody paying any attention, yeah. you know. So, but yeah, so the guy bought today. I woke up this morning because I did change it once the reopening started to. I, about a week ago to you can pay what you want if you if you want to pay more you, you can oh, okay, okay and a guy from the UK bought it for five dollars so I wrote him and I sent him a, a file with all the lyrics in it and oh, I thanks I said thank you for buying it and thank you for buying it for more than you had to yeah Here, here's the lyrics <laughs> that's awesome so, so if if anybody else wants to to do that, where can they find the the album and the live show? Um, the live show is only going to be on my website because 
that's the only way I can control where the money goes. Okay. So it's not gonna it's not gonna count as any kind of sales for me. Right. But I'm all right with that. I don't care. Um, I mean, people, you know, you can buy the record on iTunes, you can buy it on Bandcamp, you can buy it on CD Baby, you can buy you can buy it anywhere, okay. um, online, um, but only on. Well, I think, I think I said it. I think on Bandcamp, I said it uh, as low as they let me set the price. Okay. But I haven't made any sales from there, and um, I, I'm getting—I am getting streams, and it's, it's interesting because people are streaming all my records and all the tracks of all my records. So that's kind of cool because you know, especially because I haven't been promoting Pearl Harbor at all because I'm going to re-release it, right? And people are like listening to all the tracks. So that's very encouraging to me. That yeah, that's wonderful. What's the website where they can buy the live show? Um, it's just alphacat.band. All right, perfect, perfect. And what's your social media where people can follow you and, and get information about the remastered Pearl Harbor and uh, everything else that you that you're up to? Everything is Alphacat Band. I want to. I've, I've kept you for two hours now and I, I want to thank you so much for the amazing stories and the, the, the wonderful conversation it's really been wonderful getting to know you today through the emails through the show and I definitely want to stay in touch and and uh, talk about Richard Lloyd yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe we could get him on I can get both of you guys on at the same time oh my god no no we can't do that no <laughs> That's something we'll talk about, not on the air. <laughs> you got it. You got it. <laughs> Thank you so much for spending so much time with me. It's been it's been a, really a pleasure speaking with you and and getting to know you today. I've I've really enjoyed it. I know it was fun. The emailing was fun. It was. We keep it up. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It's. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank and, you. And so um, I. I really appreciate, you know, your research and your interest and your, you know, your your funny emails today <laughs> that were loud. So, oh, I'm glad. Um, and I didn't even get to tell you my not a surf story. Oh um, my gosh! Okay, well you can tell me now. And I... okay, well um, after we finished recording Pearl Harbor, um, and we got like best drummer I'd ever played with at that point um, Matt oh shit I can't remember his last name he was Jeff Buckley's drummer oh I know who you're talking about um oh uh, crap I, god I'm so bad so I played on Pearl Harbor that and there were like three drummers on it so um Matt only played I think Matt played on three songs but it was the most fun I've ever had playing with a drummer in my life I, until I met Jason. Oh, cool. Uh, it's like, it just made it so easy to lock in with them. Matt you know Johnson. I, Matt Johnson, yeah. 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 Um, well, so after Pearl Harbor was recorded, we needed a drummer. And Not A Surf had been broken up at that... They were broken up at that point, And... Somehow I got in touch or 
are their their drummer, um, and I looked up his name because it's been years. Um, shit, I lost his name. Oh, well. anyway, um, you can look it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he came and met Fred and I in the village uh, for coffee, and he gave me this demo that Nodiser had recorded. Okay. That demo was the most gorgeous thing I had ever heard in my life. Wow. And I was obsessed with it. Like, I loved it so much. And it got ruined. Oh. You know, and it's, uh, it's on a hard drive that's like 25 years old somewhere, which... Um, but the, in particular, my favorite song on there, which was just stunning, uh, unbelievable song, Inside of Love. Okay. Do you know that song? Um, I'd have to hear it again. I, I used to know some Not A Surf, but I'd have to listen to it again. Well, this is the end of the story. Not A Surf got back together. They got back on a major label the major label made them re-record inside of love and they fucking ruined it the song is not what it was it's just I mean it's a great song but the thing that was that entire demo was just hauntingly beautiful and um, I don't know if any of them have a copy of it in fact you know, I I should try to see if I can get in touch with somebody because you know I was so upset when I when I heard that that you know that release what they did to that song and and that, that's when I that's when I decided that I would never ever be on a major label. That's amazing. Oh gosh, I hate hearing that because a lot of times you'll hear that you know the demos were were good, but. You know, and I'll be honest. That's why I love getting the the um, like the deluxe editions of, of, of re-releases because I like hearing the demo versions of of songs, and and sometimes they are better than the release version. They're a little more stripped down, or or, or something's a little different that makes it better to me. The Ira, it was Ira. Okay. I've got to I've got to try to get in touch with him and see if he has a copy of that demo. I ha- I must own that. Oh man, I have that in my possession. <laughs> it's stunningly, hauntingly beautiful. It's just the most gorgeous thing I, I think I've ever heard. Oh gosh, now you're making me want to hear it. The songwriting, I, I'm. I have this friend. We I, I took this friend of mine, the one who did the artwork for. Um, thatched roof I took him to a, a not a surf gig to, to show him how great they were yeah and um, I went up to Matthew and I didn't know Matthew I went up to him afterward and I said I'm completely in love with your songwriting and my friend Sean's like and with you okay. and I'm like oh you stupid asshole why did you say that oh, God. I couldn't believe he said that and then Matthew was like uh, see you later yeah. you know? I gotta go over there. I, 
it was so mortifying. Oh my gosh! Well, you should check him up. I'm sure he's got an Instagram page. You can an Instagram account. You could probably find him on there and, me- and message him. Yeah, I will. I will. Well, thank you so much again for everything. Let's definitely stay in touch and and email back back and forth and uh, let me know some some more Richard Lloyd stories. I, I, that guy fascinates oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are not those are going to be off the record. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A phone conversation. You got <laughs> you got it. <laughs> All right. So, okay. Well, thank you so much I- again. Thank you too. It was I, I. You were just very sweet, and I. I feel really lucky that the people that are responding are, you know, with one exception, one woman interviewed me, and it was like talking to a rock. But oh gosh, that it was fun. So cool. Yeah, that's <laughs> that. It's like I feel like the people that are, you know, that I'm connecting with are people that I want to have his friends so you know i feel that way oh that's now so yeah well thank you i feel the same way black sheep too deep can sleep let go so right low tide couldn't hurt a fly It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.